And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to let Mr. Darren Drader introduce himself to you, dear listener, dear viewer. Hi, I'm Darren Drader. Um, I'm a writer, author, game designer. I've actually been working in the tabletop role-playing game industry for over two decades. Um, I've worked for uh, most of the major publishers, uh, Wizards of the Coast, Paizo, uh, done some work for Mongoose, um, so on and so forth. Uh, quite, quite a few of them that I'm not mentioning, but Fainting Goat Games is one of them I will mention um, because uh, Mike Lafferty is the one who recommended I be here. And, uh, uh, of course, my own company, which is Darren Drader Designs, or Triple D for short. Okay. And the next part of the introduction is how we first found them. And as he mentioned, it was through Mike Lafferty over at Fading Go Games. Uh, he had an episode, which uh, we've already interviewed him about, so you'll be able to watch that on Monday. But uh, he was in issue 12 of the Blaster Bolts Easy, which I also have an episode in. That was a lot of fun. The products are a lot of fun. It's worth hopping over to drive through RPG and checking it out. Even if you're normally an Amazon or Amazon or bust kind of guy, uh, I'd still recommend it. The short stories are awesome. The pictures are great. The ads are hilarious. Don't think they're real, please. Uh, but they are hilarious. And uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, we are here to talk about you today. So the religion question, sir, are you ready for this? And I am ready. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? So I have a pretty deep appreciation for all three of them. Uh, but I think that my, I think I have the greatest amount of appreciation for Star Trek. Is it the, uh, the holodeck? That's what gets a lot of people. <laughs> no, it's not the holodeck. It's the fact that it is, um, it's, it's a universe I'd want to live in. Fair. Uh, all right. And because we are polytheistic over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Wheel of Time? definitely lord of the rings you know i ask these questions and i keep expecting one day someone will say something else but the lord of the rings is sort of the fantasy that started it all so i shouldn't be surprised that everyone else says the lord of the rings yeah yeah um i the wheel of time i i got about three books into it and i didn't find robert jordan's writing style to be well it just didn't really click with me um he kind of meanders a lot in his wording and uses like phrases over and over that are kind of odd and to, to me it, it i had a hard time with it um but the tv series what I, i've seen about four episodes I, yeah, i'm gonna go back and finish watching it i've really enjoyed that so that's cool um game of thrones is just too nihilistic for me yeah i agree with you on game of thrones I have not read The Wheel of Time, but I did watch the show and I did enjoy it. I have met Robert Jordan in real life. And let me just say, as uh, verbose as you think he is in his writing, he is equally so or was when I met him. He spoke to the uh, the English club when I was in college. Oh, very cool. Um, so that was, that was kind of cool. So uh, we here at the Blaster Bolts like both the fantastical and the scientific. But what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Well, it was sci-fi. But that's because I was introduced to it. Uh, I was introduced to Star Wars at the age of four. So 
fantasy hadn't really had a chance to get in there. I would also argue that Star Wars is science fiction fantasy anyway, so it's kind of both. But, um, you know, after seeing Star Wars, that led to other science fiction uh, TV shows and movies. And it really wasn't until I was close to a decade older than that that I started actually reading fantasy and understood what that was about. Okay, so was the... um... Was the Star Wars your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction, or was there something before it? Four is kind of young, so I don't know if you can top it. <laughs> well, I do remember reruns of uh, Star Trek that my uncles watched uh, before that. and But the thing is, at that point, I was so young, I didn't really understand what I was looking at. Um, I don't think I really appreciated it. So Star Wars is the first one that I actually appreciated. Okay. So what is it that you love about speculative fiction as a genre? <laughs> Well, um, as a genre, it uh, you know it gives you it gives you a chance to dream. Um, you know, there's when you look out the window, you, you're going to see pretty much the same thing. I mean, we've got different uh, different environments here on Earth, but um, you know, it's all it's all Earth-like. We're familiar with all of it. If we haven't been there ourselves, we at least have seen the pictures and we know what it looks like and that type of thing. And speculative fiction gives you the chance to imagine something different, you know, um, different alien species, different, um, you know, worlds that might be covered in fungus instead of trees or, you know, so on and so forth. And then there's the, uh, the question of... Um, you know, what are we capable of building? You know, can we build a space station the size of a moon um, or a Dyson sphere? Or, um, you know, can we overcome the uh, the speed of light and actually bypass the, uh, you know, the universal speed limit? Um, <clears throat> it's kind of, a, you know, it, it, it's a way to look at... Um, way to look at the future and imagine what might be and what we might achieve and it doesn't have to be tied back to our our daily mundane lives okay that is a good answer um dare to dream and all so how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition to you writing novels and creating content in this space well um i always wanted to um you know, in high school, I think at the age of 16, I made the decision that I'm going to be a writer, <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, at that point in time, I'd written stories and I was very interested in fiction. I read a lot of books and that type of thing. But that was the age where I just sat down and said, you know what? It's my life to live. I'm going to live it the way I want. And I'm going to be a writer. And I've actually followed that um, ever since. Um, so how did that you know, how did that uh, transition? Um, you know, the first thing you do when you want to do something is you learn as much you, as you can about it. So I took a uh, class in creative writing in, uh, in high school. And then when I went to college, I took um, two more classes on creative writing. And then on top of that, I also took a class on um, uh, science fiction literature. Um, Later on, I ended up working for uh, Wizards of the Coast as an employee, and I also did some freelancing. And so it it just kind of, it was the direction I wanted to go in, and it's a direction I've followed ever since. 
That is a good answer. So let's transition from there to games. You're not just an author, as you mentioned, you're also an RPG game designer. So mm-hmm. how did your love of role-playing transition to you getting work in that space? Well, uh, that's that's an interesting story, I think. <laughs> um, so in, uh, what was it, 2000 and, I want to say 2000, or no, actually, I'm sorry, 2000, no, it's 1996 or 97, somewhere in there. Um, I was actually working in the Seattle area. I was living in the Seattle area, and I was working um, at a place that sells computers. And um, I had heard one day that uh, Wizards of the Coast, which was like literally less than a mile away from where I was selling computers, had acquired TSR. And that made me very excited because it had always been a dream of mine to, to work for TSR. Um, of course, they were in Wisconsin and they were kind of out of reach and I had no desire to move there or, um, and I really didn't even know how to go about applying for a job with them. Um, so I hear that they've acquired TSR and at that point I'm excited. Um, and then one day, uh, a guy who I'm still friends with, Jim Butler, who was a TSR employee and then became a Wizards of the Coast employee, currently works at, uh, at Paizo as their president, um, comes walking into the um, into the store and I sell him a computer. And of course, at that point, um, I'm like, oh my God, you work for TSR. I'm just, it's, I'm amazed. And, you know, tell me what you guys are up to and blah, blah, blah. And we actually got along really well. And he, uh, he ended up leaving Wizards of the Coast and started up his own company called Bastion Press, and I ended up being a, a regular freelancer for him. Um, but after after that, it, it took me a little while to get me through the door. Um, what ended up happening was uh, I was um, the, the company I was selling computers for went out of business, so I went to work for uh, Sleep Train selling mattresses. And then while I was doing that, I was finding sales just you know not very rewarding um you know it's not something i really wanted to do long term and so at the time there were these wizards of the coast um retail stores so i walked into one started talking to the employees i was like hey is there a back door into wizards of the coast and they mean like what retail and no corporate and they're like oh yeah there's this one staffing company oh really so I quit my job in sales, got with the staffing company. They got me placed in Wizards of the Coast very quickly. And then from there, it didn't take that much time for me to make connections within the research and development team. Um, you know, they got me, um, I submitted some articles to Dragon Magazine. Um, those got printed and then it moved on to the Book of Exalted Deeds and then uh, some Forgotten Realm stuff and then uh d20 modern apocalypse um and things just kind of snowballed from there but it uh for me it was really just you know get on site make the connections and um show them that i can actually do the work so it all started with quality customer service is what you're telling me you could say that yes or you could say that it started with uh with sales (laughs) <laughs> well, I was just thinking if you had been one of those snarky, rude sort of salespeople that sometimes you have to deal with, you might not have landed your dream job. That's true. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that uh I wouldn't say that Jim Butler was 
was um, instrumental in getting me through the door. But he did give me some opportunity once, you know, after the point. So as I was coming in, he was going out. Right. Um, but it was more like that was the first TSR employee that I met or the first Wizards of the Coast employee that I met. And uh, I don't think he went back to the office and told people about me or anything. But, um, you know, for me, it was like, oh, these people are actually here now. I'm actually meeting them. This is really cool. There might be a place there for me, <laughs> you know. So it was the spark that lit the forest fire of, of, of love for you. All right. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't want to get any any uh, weirder because, you know, we'll, we'll just move on. <laughs> so many creative types let their own real life experiences influence the way they tell stories or in your case also create content. So were there any specific formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller or game designer? Hmm. Well, as a game designer, I think that uh, I think it was just my first exposure to role playing games. Um, I actually, so I think I was about uh, nine or ten years old, and um, I was uh, I was at Toys R Us with my mother, and we saw the D and D you know red box set, and not knowing what it was, I just said, "Hey, I want that." Okay, so we got it, and I took it home. And I remember sitting there by myself, reading through it, and not really getting how the game is played. I was pretty young still. Not really understanding what it is you're supposed to do here. Um, so then it kind of got put away into the closet, and I kind of forgot about it. And then um, when I was 11, and this is, uh, this is fall of 1984, um, my best friend from when I was much younger, um, he had uh, he had at one point lived across the street from me, and we'd always, um, you know, we'd always stayed in touch and that sort of thing. He came and visited the area with uh, uh, with his mother, and he ended up spending about a week um, out at the farm with me. Um, and so, you know, we were obviously kind of bored. And he's like, "Going, eh, what do you have to do?" You know, and he starts looking through looking through my junk in the closet, and he pulls out the D and D box, and he's like. Oh, you've got D and D. All right, we got to play this. Um, and then uh, he basically soloed me through a couple of. Well, he stole, sold me through one adventure, um, which was uh, called the Lost City B four. I'm sure anybody who knows D and D is familiar with it. At least they've been playing long enough. Um, and after that, that was just you know um kind of a mind blowing experience for me because now you don't just read about it in fiction. You can actually play it. You can actually be a character and, and that sort of thing. So um, I ended up going out uh, to the bookstore where he was still there and uh, picking up B5, which is Horror in the Hill, and then he, he ran me through that. And that kind of opened up the door to collecting D&D books and um, collecting more D&D books and trying to get a group together and eventually getting that group together and long-term campaigns and you know so on and so forth. It's one of those things where you know, I kind of ended up having this uh, this real love for it. And um, in addition to deciding, hey, I want to write fiction for a living um, at the age of 16, um, I also kind of said, I'd like to find a, a, a place for myself in the RPG industry as well. And eventually, like I said, I, I managed to make that happen. Well done, by the way. That's some dedication. 
So let's transition away from the creative side and talk about things from the fan angle. So has anybody ever asked for your autograph? No. <laughs> I have been to conventions where, you know, I, I was sitting at a table and, and signing out autographs. And, that, you know, occasionally I'd have somebody come by with a book of Exalted Deeds or one of the Forgotten Realms books and I'd sign it. Um, but has anybody gone out of their way to ask, for, ask me for an autograph? No, not really. Um, I can tell you, however, that Will Wheaton is the only person alive who has a copy of the book, the book of Exalted Deeds with the signatures of all three of the authors that worked on it. Wow. And that was, that was my doing. So, <laughs> so did you get your own copy that was set with, with all the signatures at least? No, no, I didn't. Um, that was that was a mistake on your part. Well, I mean, I was one of, I was one of the authors, and I, you know, I, there's two other authors. There's uh, there's Chris Perkins and James Wyatt, um, and uh, I I kind of saw them on a daily basis, so uh, I didn't really feel like I needed to, you know, go all fanboy on them and say, "Will you sign this next to my name?" <laughs> so I, I guess I'm enough of a historian that I like want to I want a copy of everything I write, and if I co-wrote like get one with signatures because you know for posterity's sake <laughs> um but but in the modern age you don't necessarily have to know someone in real life to work with them so some mm -hmm. of these people you know you've only met over the phone or or whatever yeah so it's not quite the same and I, i'm co-writing with uh with james ward and you can best believe i'll be getting that one with his signature on it <laughs> for, cool. for later he's, cool. he's a nice guy i like him all right so are you work on giant lands uh no it's um uh portal fantasy series oh Okay. So modern striker brigade and goes into fantasy Egypt, fights the gods okay. and such. Cool. Because who doesn't love a good Egyptian story? But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about you. <laughs> and Giant Lands is awesome, by the way. We did an interview on it, dear listeners. So check that one out. And uh, it's still available for sale. So talking about you as a nerdy creator, have you ever gotten to see anybody out in public reading your books or playing any of your games? Reading my books, no. Um, but that's because I am self-published and, uh, basically, um, either people I've never met before go on Amazon and purchase something that I have written, or I am directly involved with selling them the book, in which case it is not a surprise when, some, when I see them reading it at some point. Um, playing my games, however, yes, um, I have been to, uh, conventions where you know they had the book of exalted deeds out or you know they're running a forgotten realms game and uh you know they might have had serpent kingdoms or mysteries of the moon sea and using that um so yeah i, I have had that happen so uh dear listener we haven't talked about this yet but he does have a way to contact him on his discord and uh, presumably you have a newsletter um no <laughs> i should I don't. So you you can reach out to him through his website. So if you have pictures of people in the wild, even if that person is you, uh, reading your, his content, he'd love to see it. Oh, the yeah, coolest gift awesome. I ever got was someone took a picture of them reading my book by the fire, uh, by a fireplace with a good cigar and some some aged bourbon, which is you know for military science fiction you can't beat that as an image, right? And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah you're really just, cool. you can't. So so if you could do that kind of thing for other authors, they would always love to see it. So so there you go. Um, so finally, uh, what is the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan since you started creating content? Well, um, see, 
the thing is, I don't go to a lot of conventions. And um, that's mainly because I live in eastern Washington. And uh, the nearest one that happens is, I think, Spokon, which I've gone to a couple times. Um, you know, and then if I want to go to Western Washington, you know, there's PaizoCon and there's NorwestCon. And I have been to both of those, but I don't go to them very often. Um, but uh, so, so like I said, I don't, I wouldn't say that I have a lot of direct interactions with a lot of fans, but I do remember there's this one time um, I got in the elevator and I'm pretty sure this is for, for PaizoCon and it might've even been for the very first PaizoCon. Um, I got in, in an elevator and one of the people riding um, was also attending the convention and uh, he, he asked me a couple of questions and realized that I am somebody who writes RPG material and has worked on some stuff that he's familiar with, at which point in time he got very quiet and kind of weirded out until we got off the elevator. So I thought that was kind of funny. And if you are that that uh, that person, if that was you, he he's okay. You could still reach out and ask for his autograph. Just email him. <laughs> Links are in the show notes. He'd love to talk to you. And, uh, and join his Discord if you want something more regular. So, right. So this is the part of the interview, dear listener, where we talk about everything Darren Drader has created or designed. So can you give us the Reader's Digest uh, version of your body of works? Uh, sure. Um, I've mentioned the uh, stuff that I did for Wizards of the Coast. So that's going to be Book Exalted Deeds. It's the very first one. A couple of Forgotten Realms books. There's Serpent Kingdoms and Mysteries of the Moon Sea. Then there was D20 Apocalypse. Uh, then we get into stuff, the era where I started working for a lot of other people. So I worked on almost every book in the Oathbound line from Bastard Press. Um, I worked on some Paizo material. Um, so if you are a Pathfinder fan and you're familiar with the Grave Knight, I wrote that. Um, I also wrote um, an adventure and some other stuff for them. Um, let's see, we're doing Cliff's Notes, so I'll skip a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, there is a book that is fairly recent for 5th edition. It's a monster book by Kobold Press. Uh, that is called, I always get this wrong and I might have to look it up. Um, actually, I'm going to look it up real quick. Um, that is called Tomb of Beasts 2. Okay. I contributed 25 monsters to that. Um, and it's a, it's a huge book, and there's probably like 400 monsters in it, so it's not like I contributed a huge chunk of, of the book, but it was actually one of the more significant contributions from uh, any of the, uh, the writers. Um, Reign of Discordia, I, I did that. I'm now doing the Kickstarter. Um, and, and I think that's probably... I, I've got something like 70 or 80 published credits so i'm not going to go and list them all <laughs> no that that is understandable sometimes you can list them all because your authors are new enough and others they've got like hundreds of, of titles out literally and we just don't we don't have time for that that's why we exactly. said readers digest version instead of at one point in time i literally read them out and when i realized one author i it was five minutes of me reading titles i'm like never again <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Michael Anderley, I'm looking at you, boy. Um, he's a nice <laughs> guy, though. He, so. How does he do that? I know uh, who you're talking about. I've, I've I, I don't know how he writes so fast. I wish I could figure it out because I'd like to duplicate it. I'm just not that, that fast. 
I know. Yeah. Well, and that was even before he had all the co-writers. I mean, he was he was still writing at a fast pace. So mm-hmm. uh, before we dive into the Reign of Discordia, which is what brought us here, you created 25 monsters for that manual. So how do you mm-hmm. go about creating when you make monsters? Do you let nature inspire you? Are you, you know, inspired <laughs> by your nightmares, folk legends? Like, how do you how do you go about creating those? Well, I was working with um, with Wolfgang Bauer, who runs Kobold Press. And a lot of it was just, I come up with an idea, I pitch it in a sentence or two, and I throw it at him and see what sticks. That's part of it. The other part of it is um, there were quite a few uh, quite a few nights out on the deck with my wife drinking wine, coming up with the craziest ideas that we could come up with, um, such as the Butterfly Demon, which they actually used to market that book for the Kickstarter. Um, my wife actually came up with that idea. Um, she's like, what about a butterfly demon? And I'm like, okay, how many wines deep were you at that point? Because that's unique. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to take the fifth on that question. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Few enough that you remembered it in the morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it ended up being a, a butterfly demon lord. We got two butterfly demons out of it. So we had the d- butterfly demon lord, and then we had the... Um, uh, the lesser one that serves the, the, the demon Lord. Um, and uh, so, like I said, so, sometimes the ideas came directly from her, her twisted mind when we were talking about, I think I like monsters. her already. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So before we dive in, we're going to take a moment where we shamelessly shill for the man with this commercial interlude. A single blip on her instrument panel brings boss to a halt. Alone on her spaceship in a remote quadrant, she drops below light speed and listens. Hearing a blip like that makes her heart pound. It means a faint energy signature from an unknown source, somewhere nearby, most likely a ship. Boss specializes in abandoned ships. She dives them for salvage. But this is like nothing she's ever seen, probably because she knows it can't be there. All of her knowledge of history, physics, and space wrecks says it's impossible. But if it's what she thinks... It could hold the key to a tremendous technological advance, one that no one in the universe should have. Called Page-Turning Space Adventure by Publishers Weekly, Diving into the Wreck by Christine Catherine Rush is classic science fiction at its most gripping. Find all seven novels in the award-winning diving series at divingintotherec.com. All right, it's a, it's a great series, people, if you haven't checked it out. Um... And while we just, uh, before the commercial break, you told us about all the, the products, well, the Reader's Digest version. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for you youngins, Reader's Digest is just like, it means it's the shortened version, all right? Um, the, while those all sounded fascinating, we're here today to talk about your reign of Discordia Kickstarter. So where did you get the premise for this universe that is Discordia? Okay, so basically this came from back in 2007, late 2007, early 2008, something like that. Um, I was working with a group of game designers called the Wear Cabbages. It was a game designer guild, and a lot of that work ended up being done for Paiso. But um, uh, it was also, you know, we kind of referred people to other, um, other publishers. And I ended up working with what was then Reality Deviant Publications. They're now called Gunmetal Games. And That's a good name. Um, I like it. Yeah, yeah, they have a really cool name. Um, so 
at that point in time, uh, David Jarvis, who runs that company, was interested in a science fiction setting. You know, he wanted to publish a science fiction setting that was compatible with the True 20 rules. And True 20 rules were kind of a simplified version of uh, the regular D20 or D&D uh, rules, third edition, which... Um, so anyway, he asked me, um, he asked me to, to basically do something. And, you know, I came up with, I came up with a proposal and, and sent it to him. He's like, yeah, yeah, go for it. Cool. So basically the, um, you know, the idea kind of came to me one time when I was out, out for a walk, like, you know, what am I going to do about this? It's that, you know, that's different than what else is out there. And you know, at the time, um, Star Wars was doing the, the expanded universe. Um, so in the Star Wars universe, you know, the Empire falls and then the New Republic picks up and kind of makes things better. And they still had all these stories they wanted to tell and everything. But um, uh, so my question is, well, what happens if you've got this evil empire and it falls? And there's nobody who wants to pick it up and put it back together and make things right. And that's kind of where I got the basis for, um, for Reign of Discordia, where um, you've got all these factions that used to be united under uh, a common government, and uh, they are not united. Like even, even humans within the, the spaces primarily controlled by humans, um, they're not necessarily allied with one another. They might be at war with one another. Um, so uh in the first edition of the game there was a um there was a an alien species that still posed a um a threat to the uh former imperium worlds they're called the retilic um and then they are uh, they're actually dealt with um at the end of at the end of what was meant to be the first edition's kind of life cycle um, and then I had actually had plans to do a second edition, like even way back then. Um, so we never actually got around to publishing the, you know, the end of that story arc, uh, due to the fact that, uh, Gunmetal Games decided to discontinue Reign of Discordia in favor of focusing exclusively on Interface Zero, which was the, um, cyberpunk, um, the, the cyberpunk genre. Uh, game and that was for Savage World. So basically, um, he ended up, David ends up turning Reign of Discordia over to me. So at that point, I actually owned Reign of Discordia, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. And I had my hands full of other things. Didn't really get along, didn't really get around to it. Um, but, you know, so now we're getting to the second edition and uh, the, the Rotilic had been basically dealt with. But part of dealing with the Rotilic, you involved using a piece of technology that you could call super science and it destabilized the world of uh or the i'm sorry destabilized the um uh the star of the lamagos homeworld now the lamagos are they look a lot like humans except they have blue skin um and they're naturally uh totalitarian well i wouldn't say naturally but they have a strong tendency toward totalitarianism and uh we'll just say military adventurism so when they found out their home world was going to be destroyed when their star went supernova um they decided to basically militarize and uh it basically just adds to the chaos but that's where we're at 
with the primary background storyline for the second edition is uh it, that's basically what's going on so it's kind of like if you were a character um in in our world um during world war ii it wouldn't matter where you lived in our world world war ii would in some way shape or color how you see things or um you know or it would directly affect you you might be part of the war that's that sort of thing so that's that's kind of um that level of uh of event that is going into second edition okay that's a lot to think about so before we uh dive too deeply into this world we're gonna look at this cover that's well at least the cover as the as it is on the kickstarter at the moment um because this is kickstarting we will get into it but uh what can you tell us about this art like how did you come up with this art style that uh that we're looking at because it definitely has a unique feel to it but i'm liking it so what i wanted to do is i wanted to have something that was a um a collage you know something that would show the fact that there's space battles they show some of the aliens um and that's uh you know that's what we ended up doing and um we sent that off to the artist and he did an amazing job he did and before we um before we move on because i'm going to show some of the art that's on your kickstarter page because that's obviously public uh, and we'll talk about the style a little bit. I noticed on there that you mentioned that the Kickstarter is funded. And people that aren't familiar with Kickstarter would say, okay, well, maybe that means they don't need my money. So can you make the pitch about why someone should support a funded project, even if, you know, in theory, it's going to happen because it's been paid for? Well, first of all, there's the rewards. You, you kick in to help, it out, to help out the project, you're going to get the game. Um, you're going to... You know, if you just do the Kickstarter, um, you're going to get either the White Star Edition or the 5e Edition or both, depending on what you choose. Um, and you might also get uh, you might also get my copy of uh, or a, a digital copy of Neurogenesis, which is the novel that I wrote and released about a year ago that ties into the setting. Um, and then after that, if you actually do the uh, all the stars. Um, then you'd be able to get um, a copy of uh, all of those things, or at least a printed edition of uh, the 5e version and White Star um, at cost, because those are going to be print on demand. Okay. So there's there's the rewards aspect. Um, there's also the, you know, the more money we have to work with, the better we can make the book. Um, some of the interior art that went into the original one, I'm not crazy about it. Um, the artists literally, I don't, well, I'm not going to mention the artist's name, but uh, the artist that we had initially hired, um, he turned over some pieces that we felt were kind of less than, less than inspired. So we went back to him and said, we'd like these changes. And instead of making the changes, he actually walked off the project. And then we had, and then at that point we were scrambling because we needed to hire a new artist. Oh, that's um, the worst feeling in the world. Yeah. Well, fortunately that wasn't my headache at the time. That was, that was Dave Jarvis's <laughs> headache. <laughs> but, uh, so we ended up with actually some really nice pieces from some various artists after that, but we also ended up with some, some ones that made it into the book that we really feel just kind of missed the mark. Um, so we want to 
we want to eliminate a lot of those pieces that we feel miss the mark and replace them with better ones. And this is also going to be a bigger book, so we need more art. Um, so basically, if with your support, we can hire artists to give us, you know, higher quality images for the uh, for the book. Um, we can give you more content because, frankly, the higher this this project funds at, um, the longer I can work on it. You know, I'm a I'm a full time freelancer. This is what I do. So, um, you know, if this thing funds at say ten thousand instead of four thousand, um, that's extra time I've got to work on it, which means more things that are going to end up in the book. Um, so that's basically um, what. Uh, what I would say the advantage is, you know, the, the more that, the more that we get out of the uh, fundraiser, um, the better book you're going to end up with. And, um, I would also say that the higher funds, that's also going to indicate the level of support that we give it after the Kickstarter as well. So if you want additional material, um, then, I mean, and we will be supporting it regardless. I'm not going to, not going to say if you want additional material, kick in a bunch of money. No. Um, what I am saying is that, uh, the more money there is, that'll be an indication of how much more material there should be. Okay. And, uh, we are going to, uh, zoom back out so you can look at some of the other art. Is that what we're looking at? So what can you tell us about the, uh, the people in this image? What, what kind of, uh, races and, um, stuff are we looking at? This is from your Kickstarter page, obviously some of the featured art. Yeah. Um, so what you've got there is you've got a Talonite rogue. So that's the guy in the back. He is he is from um, an insectoid hive-based species. Um, they're very uh, they're very loyal to their queen, and they can actually their appearance can be adjusted, or I should say, um, their their body form is actually created by the queen to do specific jobs. So in this case, that, that guy's a rogue, so he's he's long and lanky and, and that sort of thing. Um, next to him is a Lamaga soldier. Um, you'll note that he looks very humid, that he's got uh, blue skin. And we kind of went with a um, Soviet Union-style look for their society. And this guy is outside of battle armor. The, the battle armor that these guys wear, um, you know, it's, it's very distinctive. Um, it's black. It's, you know, they've got this like blue, blue lights where the eyes are and they look pretty sinister. Um, Scarlett, <laughs> you need to knock that off. You need to get out of this room right now. Sorry. Um, no, it's okay. Mine interrupts too. Sometimes <laughs> it happens. Um, so like I said, we're, we're kind of inspired by the old Soviet look of the old Soviet Soviet union with them. Um, and then finally, we've got uh, in, in the front, we've got a human sharpshooter. Okay. And now we're going to go to the other image that was included. So what are we looking at here? This looks like some sort of space fight. What are the ships we're looking at? Um, well, let's see. The ship that they're fighting was something that the artist just kind of came up with. Obviously, it's some sort of an unknown uh, alien that we have yet to actually define within the game. Um, but it's definitely something that can happen within the game. Um, you know, just because this whole thing takes place in this, uh, 
you know the former Imperium does not mean that there's uh, you know it's, it's still a small chunk of the galaxy and there's a lot of aliens that come from elsewhere that can show up and make their presence known so that's basically what is happening right here and um they're obviously uh not um on friendly terms there so it's a galactic smackdown is what you're telling me yep all right so we're gonna throw that image back up there we go throw that image back up dearly oh and uh, oh my goodness no i'm i'm not trying to there you go if you look in the bottom left corner i can't zoom in quite right uh without making it look like i'm trying to do something inappropriate you can see his uh triple d branding and i really like that uh mm -hmm. that logo um so that was that was nicely done i didn't catch that at first cool thanks all right so now that we've uh oohed and odd over the art and gotten a little bit of backstory on the uh, on the universe um Let's move on to the core, core rulebook or the core system. What would the 30-second elevator pitch for this game be? Okay, 30-second elevator pitch. Uh, using the White Star and the 5E systems, this is space opera. Um, so you can um, basically do anything you want within this universe. We're going to have rules for um, starship combat, uh, there is no space magic in the setting, but there is psionics. Um, and it is basically a setting of high adventure um, set within the ruins of Empire. Okay. All right. So let's talk about that RPG. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, it's in 5th edition, Dungeons Dragons. If you don't know what that is, you've been living under a rock. So let's move on and talk about what the Kickstarter is for, which is the OSR version, which is the White Star White Box. Is it White Star or White Box? Uh, it's White Star. Okay, the White, White Star. White, White Star and 5e. So we're going to end up with two books, one for each system. Okay. So what makes your game, uh, regardless of the system, I'm assuming that there's commonality between them, even if the dice they're rolling are the different. So what makes your game special? What sets it apart from the crowded fields you're competing in? Well, um, I know that there is space opera for 5th edition already, and White Star is actually a space opera game, uh, OSR game. Um, so what makes it different is this one's actually supported um meaning that we've got fiction you know we've, we've got a novel um we're going to continue the support after second edition and that's as opposed to uh without naming any names other kickstarters have come along and have done space opera that are fifth edition compatible um those ended up just kind of being fire and forget type releases so a lot of people went and got them and then no more support from the publisher um, I'm going to continue supporting the setting with scenarios and more in-depth world write-ups and organization write-ups and things of that nature so that if you're following along and you've got these things, eventually you're going to have a really good, solid understanding of what this, the setting's all about and you'll be able to set your own games um, within it, uh, feeling confident in the material that you're working with. Um, so, so you mentioned earlier that you came to D and D through the uh, the module. Well, you, at least you rolled dice for the first time through one of the modules, the B four module. So, mm -hmm. will there be modules set in this universe for people to you know jumpstart their first session? Yes, 
Yeah. Can you tell um, us, are, are they going to be in the Kickstarter or is that separate? So there's going to be, um, there was initially a, a module for Random Discordia first edition called Virus. And I haven't decided yet whether or not that one's getting converted. But um, we are tentatively calling the first second edition adventure Lamago's Hellhole. Um, so that's going to be actually in the core book. Um, and then after that, like I mentioned, the support um, that we're going to have, um, some of that is going to be adventure material. And what I'd like to do is over time have those, you know, those, some of those adventures will link up to tell the larger story, the, uh, you know, the, the main um, uh, world events that are happening in Reign of Discordia um, from kind of the beginning of where we're at, where the second edition begins to, to the point where that story is resolved and potentially the start of a third edition or the kickoff of a new story arc or something like that. So, you know, for those that are new to this Reign of Discordia, they, they obviously they found it through this episode. They know there's a Kickstarter out there for the second edition where if they wanted to get the first edition to sort of build, because a lot of people are collectors or completionists. So they mm -hmm. want it all right. Mm -hmm. Is the first edition still available for sale? Uh, would that potentially be on your website? So you can still get the first edition. Um, when uh, David Jarvis allowed me to take on ownership of the uh Rain Discordia intellectual property. Um, I did tell him that it was fine with me if he keeps the originals up for sale so he can make the money off of it. Um, so if anybody wants to go and purchase those, they are available through drive through. Um, there was a um, traveler version, although I have to say that I can't actually recommend that one. <laughs> okay. Is there any plans? So Aside from the, the game engine that runs them being different, is the mm -hmm. first edition is set at a different time in the in the universe. Right. Is there any plan to convert those to the to the White Star or 5e? Um not right now. So one thing that I want to um, that I do think is important is that you can play in both eras of the game. So if you want to be um, running in the first edition era when the Rotilic are still a major problem and, and that sort of thing, uh, you can definitely do that and the game will support that. Um, and there will be information in, in the, the book to support that. Um, but then, you know, kind of the, uh, the current year for the setting will be um, 10 years after the fall of the Stellar Imperium or five years after the um, first edition. Okay. All right. So was there, and we, we've covered a little bit about the world that the reign of Discordia takes place in. Was there anything to about the world itself that you thought people that are considering this Kickstarter need to know that we haven't discussed since we started talking today? Um, ah, I can't really think of anything that, you know, we haven't, um, there's a lot of specifics. I mean, you know, we can go over the specific, um, alien species that show up in it. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily something that people are going to want to hear about right now. I think that's more the type of thing they're going to want to um, look at and read about um, when they actually see the book. Um, so I would say mainly that uh, the one thing that you should be aware of is that you can pretty much, if you've got a certain mode of, of space opera or science fiction 
um, that you really enjoy and want to play, there's room for that in Rain of Discordia. Um, if you are just wanting to, you know, go out there and fight the space fascists, uh, that's the Lamagos, and you can have a great campaign where you're doing, you know, hit and runs and big battles and things like that, and that can be your game. If you are more of a, a fan of the space western, um, there's a, a section of the world where they're literally, um, it's mostly colony worlds. So you can have a, um, a game where you're running a little, a little freighter, um, picking up stuff from one world, dropping it up off in another world and having adventures, in, you know, in the meantime, um, similar to, you know, Firefly. Um, I was just thinking this sounds very brown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you're into exploration, uh, there's a lot of unexplored space, uh, both win within and outside of the Imperium. So if, you know, if your thing is, uh, you know, you want to come up with uh, a world and uh, do a session or two around what might happen when you're exploring that world, you can do that. Um, as a matter of fact, um, the novel that, that I have out there, uh, Neurogenesis, um, that's actually following a group of archaeologists. So... It's, it's pretty much a setting that will allow you to do whatever you want um, within the space opera genre. Okay, so is, does the system as it's designed, the rule set that you have in the, in the core rule book, um, does it give the, the DM and players the tools to add layers of their own to the world building? So if they wanted to explore outwards to a, a, you know fill in the blank star cluster with new planets, is Absolutely. the is the stuff there um there's going to be some support for that um i would say if you look in the first edition it kind of hints at it but there's no real um there's no real here's how you do this you know step-by-step -step process of you know building new systems and new worlds and that sort of thing um i'd like to support that a little bit more with the second edition um it may not be a role master style um, roll a bunch of dice and this is what you come up with. It might be more like, you know, these are the type of worlds that you might decide to make and here are some suggestions for what you might put on them. But, you know, really what it comes down to is follow your own, you know, follow your own creativity, um, add to this universe. We're giving you 50 worlds in the core book. Um, and that's just a start. And, you know, you're absolutely, absolutely encouraged to come up with more worlds that you can put you know, in between within this area, or, you know, you get outside of the former Imperium and it's all unknown. Um, like I said, you're, you're absolutely encouraged to explore that if you want to. So if somebody says, you know what, I've got this perfect idea in this universe and we're going to explore just in the left field where it's not, you know, the light doesn't shine in your core rule book and they come up with what they think is the perfect campaign or, or, module uh do you accept people that, that are interested in writing in this world since you said you're supporting more content or is it exclusively you for now um for now it's just me but you know i've got the discord there's ways that people can get a hold of me if somebody comes up with a really cool idea and they want to see it published i'm gonna look at it and you know, I can't promise anything, um, <laughs> but uh, there's there's a chance that yeah, I might uh, I might come up with some sort of a 
uh, an agreement with them, um, say a, a royalty splitting um, arrangement or something like that, and uh, get it into print form. Okay, so you mentioned that the core rulebook is is uh, they'll get five E or or the the White Star. Will there be a monster manual, or is that all in the core rulebook? Um, so I'm not actually doing monsters, and the reason why is because um, every world you go to is going to have different creatures, and you can amass a huge number of them very quickly. There are some sources where I'm going to recommend that people you know people check out. Now, obviously, there is no um, there's no magic in the setting, um, but uh, like Legendary Games has a couple of um, uh, a couple of five E compatible uh, monster books that are science fiction. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to to recommend those books. Um, there's a few more that are out there, um, and eventually, we probably will accumulate enough original ones um, through the publication of adventures to where we might actually just take them and consolidate them into a monster manual style uh, book, but that's not going to be until further on down the road. So I guess another way to look at that, since as you mentioned, there's no monsters, this is more just sci-fi. I guess you'd call it a bestiary instead, but most mostly just the kind of creatures they might uh, encounter. Right. Um, so, so for now, there are some um, third-party sources that they might use for inspiration that they could convert. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So for players that come at the role-playing game through a through the fantasy side with like Dungeons and Dragons and the like or or Pathfinder, um, what player classes can they play in this system? Uh, that is something we're actually not elaborating on too much. And the reason okay. is because we are still um, kicking some ideas around yeah. on that. Um, you will have a roguelike character. You will have a sharp uh, sharpshooter type character, um, <coughs> a soldier type character. Um, so basically, if you if you would normally associate it with um, with science fiction and space opera, um, or even the modern day, uh, we're going to have some representation of it in the book. Okay. You mentioned that this is um, going to be fully supported with, with future updates. So obviously this is just you speculating, nothing is set in stone. But what kind of updates do you think you're going to have uh, for this system? Um, well, you know, like I said before, I'd like to take um, I'd like to take the worlds. And e each of those 50 worlds I mentioned is going to be taken up about a page on um, within the within the book. Um, I would like to take <coughs> I would like to take some of the more interesting ones or maybe eventually all of them and turn them into 5,000 world, uh, 5,000 word supplements, um, which you'll be able to buy fairly cheaply. Um, so we'll have that. Um, if we come, you know, if we come up with, or somebody submits a class that works well in the setting, um, we might put that out there. Um, we might go into more, uh, depth on some of the organizations that are mentioned in the book. Um, so basically what, what it comes down to is, uh, you're, you're just going to get each of the supplements, um, uh, and, and then adventures, but each of the supplements is going to just kind of take one of the areas that's in setting and do a deeper dive on it and give you more information. Okay. But can they make a run with their space fighter? through a trench of some sort to destroy a large structure that people might or might not be familiar with. 
<laughs> if the GM wants that, sure. <laughs> so how much, having only role-played fantasy, uh, there's not been a lot of call for maintaining or, or controlling vehicles in my campaigns. So how difficult is that to manage something like space when you've got everything is now in three dimensions? So first of all, there's not really a good way to do three dimensions on a two-dimensional surface. So um, unfortunately, we can kind of uh, forget that idea. Um, <laughs> but excuse me. Um, the idea is, um, a lot of people who have run, um, you know, have run like space battles in their RPGs, a lot of people kind of hate it. And the reason is because we're put, you're basically taking the rules of the role-playing game and adding another layer of rules in between, um, in between the players and the game they're trying to play. And it's my, it's my design goal to make that, uh, that extra layer of rules as transparent as possible. So what that means is that um, when doing a, a space battle, um, there's still going to be an initiative order. The captain is going to give orders. They're going to either inspire or they're going to, um, there's a few different actions they can take. Um, and then it's going to go to the next player and that player is going to be able to, you know, if they're the engineer, they might try to affect repairs or fix shields or that sort of thing. Um, and that'll be a skill roll. And then the next player might be the, um, you know, the helmsman and it'd be, it'll be their job to steer the ship. Um, so the idea is that everybody has something to do. And then when we get to the, um, the non-player characters, uh, the GM is going to be able to quickly look at their um, ship sheet and say, <coughs> well, we're on fire. We, you know, we're on fire. We need to make some repairs or we need to put out the fire and we need to shoot and we need to raise shields or, or, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, the idea though is to keep the, um, you know, to, to keep it so that it's still streamlined. Um, there are some systems out there such as for like what Paizo has for the Starfinder system, where the system already exists and we could literally use the open game license to take that system and plop it down in our game as is. Um, but uh, we're not doing that because we want to make this as streamlined as possible um, and, uh, and you know thereby easier and faster for the players. And there's also going to be two modes that you can play. Um, one mode is going to be um, you're sitting here and you've got, uh, say you've got several ships out on the, out on the field and it's going to be done on a hex grid. Um, so you, you're worrying about the movement of every ship and where they are in relationship to each other. And, you know, the other things that might be out there like a planet or, um, asteroids or, or that sort of thing. Um, the other mode is going to be the quick and dirty mode, which you're probably only using if you've got, if the, the characters are only in one ship, um, you know, say uh, a freighter that's, you know, got tons of armor on it <laughs> and has been outfitted with uh, a quad laser cannon um, or a fighter or, you know, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and they only have like one or two um, opponents against them. Like I said, this is quick and dirty. So basically you've got this, uh, this circular um, 
circular thing that you're going to have in front of you with your ship in the middle and it's going to be divided into quadrants and it will show where the other ship is in relation in relation to you so they might be at long range um to port or they might be at uh they might be very close to you at short range um right in front of you and the idea there is you only need to worry about that much information to run the game and you don't need to break out a, a hex grid for that so you mentioned the hex grid um Will there be where will there be maps um, on this um, in the core rulebook, or is that something that'll come later? Um, it's basically going to just say use a hex grid. Um, there, there might be some maps that are um, that are re related to the individual scenarios. Um, so you might be, you know, the scenario might be like you know, take your ship and overcome some fighters and land on this planet or something like that. Um, so that that might be that type of thing. If it's a larger battle that we're setting up, we might have, you know, a hex map with um, a number of different groupings of ships that interact in some way. Um, so it just, it kind of depends on what the, uh, what's needed for the scenario. I couldn't um, begin to imagine the difficulty of trying to map out a three-dimensional galaxy on two-dimensional space anyway. I know there are mapping programs out there. As an author who tried to organize a universe, I know they exist, but man, trying to run it, and like it's just, it's difficult. Do you at mm -hmm. least say point A to point B is X number of light years, so it takes you X time to get there kind of thing? Yes. Okay. Um, well, that's that's a lot to think about. Yeah, I, I, I mean, do it's, like it's that. a... It is, it's, it's, it's a two-dimensional map of the universe as we know it, um, or it's actually just a section of the galaxy and a relatively small section at that. Um, but it is two-dimensional. It is top-down. It doesn't really take advantage of, uh, of three-dimensional space because I'm not aware of any way to do that. Um, you could always just put points on a map and then give it a value of plus or minus, and that's how far off the center plane they are. But at that point, you're kind of putting in more work than I feel is really necessary. Um, and I don't think the players are going to necessarily care that much how far off the center plane it's going to be. So I think the two-dimensional map is is adequate. I imagine people that care that much of that level of detail are playing like the real-time stuff on computers as opposed to role-playing games. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I, can, I can appreciate that. Um, so with the um, the stats that you have, because obviously you have stat blocks for certain types of ships, is there enough in there in the core, core rule book that if a player wants to make their own ship of fill-in-the-blank variety to add flavor, is there the tools there for them to be able to do that? Absolutely. Because um, I know like if you look at traditional um, fantasy role-playing games, like the AC stats, for instance, like this type of armor is x right like we'll say chainmail. well you know this isn't technically chainmail. maybe it's greek bronze plate but it's close enough so right, you know you can right. do a quick fudge substitute are those level of details there to allow that level of creativity um yeah i mean basically um we're gonna give you some ships to start with we're gonna okay. give you rules for customizing the ships and uh over time we're gonna give you more ships 
So if you want to take something that already exists and customize it, make it your own, um, like I said, that's absolutely supported by the rules. Okay. So and the other thing is, the other thing is just because we have drawings of the ships in the book does not necessarily mean that that drawing in the book has to fit your version of that ship. Um, you know, a destroyer, uh we we show you what a destroyer might look like but this might be a talonite destroyer or a lamagos destroyer and you might come up with you know if you're artistically inclined you might come up with a different look for that ship and that's totally cool too so can you make your ship fast enough that you can make the castle run in 12 parsecs <laughs> uh no I that's impossible <laughs> <laughs> um so all right. Was there anything else about this world that sounds fascinating? Well, first off, since it is on Kickstarter, <clears throat> what are the different levels of support and, and what does that get somebody who wants to um, support this project besides from funding what sounds like a really cool world? Okay. So for $20, you get the PDF of either the White Star Edition or the 5e Edition. Uh, $25, you either get the 5e Edition um, or White Star Edition plus an electronic copy of the novel Neurogenesis, which ties into the setting. Um, at the, I'm gonna have to actually go look at this because I know that uh, I'm gonna skip something if I don't. Um, so that was uh, 25. Okay, at the $45 level, that's the all the stars level. So. At that level, you get a PDF of both the White Star and the 5E version of the book. You also get the electronic copy of Neurogenesis. <clears throat> In addition to that, we're going to put um, we're going to put the books up for um, uh, for print on demand, and we're going to do that. If if you back at the forty five dollar level, we're going to do that to where we're not making any profit whatsoever. So basically, it's either going to be through drive-through or through Lulu, and you just go there, put in your coupon. They will charge you whatever it costs to print and ship, and that's it. And like I said, we don't we don't make a profit on that. If you back it at a lower level, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna you know we're we're gonna add a little bit of profit into that. So that's that's kind of one of the big advantages of the uh, the forty five dollar level. Um, we also have some. Uh, what you call whales, I guess. Um, the first one is for $165, you get everything at the $45 level. Plus, I will personally run a game for you online. Um, at $450, um, we will collaborate on a piece of short fiction in addition to everything that was in the uh, $45 level. And if you really like the setting enough to put $5,000 into it, I will hand deliver a printed version of the game. You'll, you'll get everything at the $45 level. I will hand deliver a version of the game or the printed version of the game um, of both White Star and, uh, and 5e um, to your home, wherever you live, as long as it's in the continental United States. And while I'm there, I will actually run a game for your group. So that's kind of a deluxe um, thing. And I can't imagine you get many takers on that. I actually have one. Wow. Okay. Congratulations. Now I have to qualify that a little bit. 
because they are what you would call a silent backer, meaning they didn't, they are putting a thousand dollars to the Kickstarter. Um, the rest of it isn't going to the Kickstarter and that's because they actually, it's a bank issue. So we're, we're kind of handling that off Kickstarter, but the total amount that we've raised is actually $4,000 more than what the Kickstarter currently shows. And it's because of that one particular backer. Um, they're also not from the United States, but uh, we're making arrangements to meet up uh, at some point, either at uh, Gen Con next year or uh, somewhere local to me um, in Washington State and, uh, and run it that way. Okay, that is cool. That is cool. If I had that much scratch, I might I might take an effort at that. So uh, so buy more of our books. His too. Um, yeah. So yeah. we you know before we before we move on because you know this we talk about the Kickstarter. We want to talk a little bit about you as a uh, game designer. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you have a novel set out in this world. Uh, is there plans when you talk about this system being supported? Is there plans to add more fiction content to this world, or will it mostly be the game at this point? Um. Current plans are mostly the game. And that's because of the fact that, you know, that's what people are interested in. That's what's, you know, that's what's bringing them in and that type of thing. However, um, I do have a group of characters that uh, appear in Neurogenesis. And the plan was always to continue on with their adventures. Um, so, and that's actually um, the, the story in Blaster Bolts is a prequel to, um, to Neurogenesis. So I would very much like to revisit those characters in the form of fiction and continue on with that. Um, I don't know when it's going to happen. I've got a pretty good idea of what the larger story is going to be. And um, so, yeah, let's just give it, let's just leave that one with a solid maybe. Okay. So if somebody read that story and they absolutely loved it, is there any chance they encounter those characters as NPCs in the, um, the game? Um, they will be statted up as NPCs in the game, yes. Ah, oh, freaking standing. That makes it even cooler. So let's talk about, you know, that we've talked about the Kickstarter. As usual, dear listener, the link will be in the show notes. As you are viewing this, it will still be live. So if this sounds cool to you, at least back it at the level to get a copy of the, of the you know, PDF and show some love. Um, if you don't catch it in time, if you're watching this, you know, a year later, whatever, sometimes happens, uh, it will be for sale on DriveThruRPG, correct? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Okay. So as a game designer, we're going to talk a little bit about you as a creative game designer since we have a little bit of time. So how do you go about creating immersive worlds without stunting the role of the game master and the player when it comes to universe creation? Um, the general idea is to give them the information they need to run it. In other words, tell them, um, you know, what's the flora and fauna like? What's the, um, you know, what you know, what's, what's it like, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, weather, is it a, is it a forest world? Is it a desert world? Is it, um, more like earth where there's a variety, um, who's in charge, who the groups are that, you know, um, what, what power groups are, are, are going to be there. Um, and then basically the GM can come in here and say, well, I like that. I like that. I like that, you know, or I'm going to take this group over here and they're going to be doing something in this world and the characters can get involved in it and that sort of thing. So, um, the idea is to, um, you know, to flesh it out enough to where you can say, 
where you can visualize what it looks like if you're actually there and then put plot hooks out there and then the gm can use those plot hooks or they can choose not to use those plot hooks you know they can do pretty much whatever they want because it's their setting okay so uh before we dive a little bit deeper into the broader q a that is gaming let's talk about the low-hanging fruit now you came into gaming in the 96 so you watched it be revolutionized uh with technology so do you think on a fundamental level role-playing has changed because of the the way people engage with like discords and zoom and, and roll 20 and all that things or do you think at its core gaming is still the same um i think that uh the main thing that that uh the different communities out there have uh have led to is People want to run in a certain game system they can because they're not looking around for players in their local area. Um, and then they can take it to things like, uh, you know, the Roll20 online gaming table and and run their game there. Um, so I think that in that way, it's allowed people access to games that they otherwise wouldn't necessarily have been able to, uh, to do. Um, and a lot of that has to do with just the fact that there's so many people out there who the only game that they're going to play is D&D. The only thing they want is fantasy. And they're really not interested in science fiction or modern day or, you know, all these other varieties. They're just like, I know D&D. That's what I like. That's what I want to play. And a lot of groups are, are limited in what they can do because that's the mindset that they're running into. Um, so I think that what that translates into is there's, there's more people from everywhere playing you know playing games they wouldn't uh you know that they want to play i hadn't considered that aspect of it but it makes sense mm -hmm. <clears throat> i grew up in a navy town so everyone was always moving so I, it, it makes sense that that would allow you to find you know to stay in touch with an existing game but mm -hmm. i hadn't considered the the difficulties in finding uh tables to play at other than you know the the 800 pound gorilla in the room Mm -hmm. That's actually something to think about. Um, so I've, I've run into that myself with my own, you know, my own group of, uh, of gamers. Um, I've been friends with the same group of guys since high school um, here in town. But to try to get them to play something else is nearly impossible. So um, I actually started up through, uh, through Roll20. Um, I started up my Star Trek game and my Fallout game. And, you know, like I said, the only way that I can actually make that happen is because of the fact that I can find other people who are really into those things who want to play it. So is your Fallout game, like, sponsored by the Fallout publishers, or is this just something you're doing? Um, I wouldn't say sponsored, because sponsored means they actually, you know, um, usually give you product to give away. Um, what it is, Modifius, Modifius Entertainment, they're the, they're the company that makes the 2D20 system and they're the ones who have the uh, license to do the Fallout game. Um, they've actually got a, a streamers section of their website and we're listed there with the other people who are streaming, um, who are streaming their uh, Fallout games. I feel like such a bad nerd because I didn't know Fallout the Universe was actually an RPG as well because I played the, the video game, obviously, on the Xbox, but... Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it existed in, in dice form, which is kind of cool. It's fairly new, and it's something that a lot of companies have been trying to get off the ground for a long time, and Modifius finally pulled it off. Um, 
you know, uh, I forget what the name of the game was, but uh, all the way back when third edition was a thing, um, right. there's a company that was contracted to do Fallout, um, and it would have been compatible with D&D. It was using D20 system. And uh, they actually ended up pulling the license from those people, and they had to put it out under a different name with obviously different art. Um, and then Modiphius, I guess, first they did a, a miniature, or no, they just did a board game. And uh, I think Bethesda was like, wow, that went so smooth. We'll just, you know, we'll just uh, go ahead and give you the RPG license too. And so it's out and it's, it's a lot of fun. It sounds like we'll have to check that out and uh, we'll have to link to your YouTube channel. Is that where you run your game or is it on Twitch? I run it on Twitch, but I post the videos up on YouTube. All right. So we'll link to both then. Um, so, you know, you've mentioned that this game obviously is, is space opera and D and D traditionally is fantasy. So are there any genres of, you know, fiction that you think make a better, um, are better suited to translation into a gaming medium? Or do you think any, any fiction can be converted? Well, uh, it kind of depends. I mean, I think that, um, if we're talking about science fiction or fantasy, probably anything could be turned into a game. Um, but I think that uh, not every novel that exists that's interesting to read is going to be a fun RPG. Um, for instance, um, you know, Ulysses by James Joyce. Do you really want to play that RPG? <laughs> you know, I think right. that, uh, I think it needs to have action. I think that's that's fairly important. Um, you know, it has to be um, it has to have a world that's engaging, um, and I think that uh, to go along with that, um, the novel or the the fiction can't just be like headspace kind of stuff. Um, you know, if if the real action is what's going on in the character's head, how interested are you going to be? <clears throat> excuse me, sitting down at a table with a group of players, um, kind of having those, those conversations or those interactions. Um, I, I think it would be a, a completely bizarre experience and not something I can really imagine. So, like I said, I think, I think it really comes down to action, diplomacy, skill, skill use, that type of thing. So teenage angst need not apply. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> you can have a, a teen angsty character, but if that's the focus of your setting, that might be tricky to pull off. <laughs> <laughs> that's very diplomatic. So you actually, you did cover what, what makes something ideal compatible. So normally ask, we would ask authors if there was any plans to convert their, their universe, if we thought it was appropriate, into game form. So let's reverse that with you since you've done both. Um, have any of your independent IPs, aside from the Reign of um, uh, Discordia, uh, any of your games been novelized, or is that the only one? Because you've worked in a lot of worlds. There is another one. Um, the other one is uh, Nuclear Sunset, which is... An awesome title. Uh, basically, think... Um, think fallout with the serial numbers filed off um <laughs> i'm there for it so uh and it's kind of funny because when i worked on d20 apocalypse for watsy the name of the 
post-nuclear settings. We had different settings that were post-apocalyptic. The name of the post-nuclear setting was Atomic Sunrise. So uh, I'm digging that too. Own, when doing my own, I kind of reversed it and it's nuclear sunset. Um, so anyway, I, I did a, a regional source book for the Pacific Northwest, um, which I'm actually using along with the Fallout content to do the um, the streaming Fallout game that we discussed already. Um, and that has actually spawned a novel, which um, now I'm suddenly drawing a blank on what the title of that novel is. Um, I'll look it up on Amazon real quick. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. It's Legacy of Ruin. It's Nuclear Sunset uh, Legacy of Ruin. So um, if you're interested in a post-nuclear, post-apocalyptic setting um, that takes place in the United States, Pacific Northwest, uh, that might be a fun book for you to read. Lots of mutants and uh, a story that I'm kind of proud of. And uh, that's actually currently, um, Nuclear Sunset is actually currently owned by Vigilance Games, but I am in negotiations with James Dossie to uh, get the rights back to nuclear sunset in the near future okay all right so before we do the wrap-up portion of this interview if you could work and obviously you've worked in some iconic ones so maybe you already have but if mm -hmm. you could work for any um gaming franchise is there anyone you haven't worked in that you'd love to the only one is actually star trek and like i said i am streaming a star trek game but um i've had some uh some some talks with uh, the guy who kind of runs um, Star Trek for Modiphius. Um, he's like pitched me some adventures ideas, and you know, over the course of running these Star Trek games, I've come up with some adventure ideas. And um, basically, the last time I actually pitched him something was during COVID, and his answer was, "Well, uh, right now Modiphius isn't having me do new adventures due to COVID, and since then I haven't pitched him anything new." So. I have a feeling that sooner or later something's gonna work out and i'm gonna get to do something in in star trek um but i've got a lot of other projects um that uh are are current and uh frankly as a full-time game designer are paying me so <laughs> it, it's something that I, I want that to happen sooner or later um and hopefully it will I have to say that's the one thing that always makes me laugh when people ask, you know, newer creators, like, how do you come up with your ideas? You know, where do you, I'm like, how do you turn them off? Like, that's the real problem. I just want a good night's sleep, make them go away for five hours. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So it's, if you got hired by any company to turn an existing franchise that's in book or movie, but doesn't exist in game space into a game, is there anyone that you'd want? Oh man, that's tough because there's so many of them that, uh, that have been turned into games. Um, I would have said Fallout once upon a time, but that's been done. Um, Star Trek has been done several times now. Um, Star Wars, again, has been done several times. Um, Lord of the Rings, done. Um, Stranger Things, uh, they've got a game called Kids on Bikes, which is basically Stranger Things. They've also cool. done, Watsy's done the Stranger Things um, D&D box. Um, yeah, that's a that's a tough one, just to try to find something that hasn't been done. Um, 
the Orville. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking like like the Elder Scrolls universe, which is a technically an RPG because it's the video version, but mm -hmm. I don't think there's a roll dice version yet. Or um, Dragon Age, which is also a, a, a computer or a video game version of there an RPG. A, there is a Dragon Age RPG by um, Green Ronin. Wow, okay, I'm going to have to look that up because I, I love the universe. <laughs> but I do say it, it was a lot more restrictive because it was linear. It wasn't as open world. But I mm -hmm. think the canon was kind of cool, like the ideas. So I think that's another thing to consider. you got to have some, some cool canon ideas to give something to work with in, for a game to work. Because mm -hmm. I've seen some games that fizzled out on Kickstarter that just the canon, the concept, like the game might have been fun, but the core canon behind it was kind of like, eh, okay. I, I think that makes a difference too. Yeah, so since, I agree. Since, since this is wrapping up, um, was there anything about the Reign of Discordia or the Kickstarter that we didn't ask to bring it home to why we brought you here that you want to tell us as a, as a send-off? Well, I, I think we've kind of covered the subject matter and what the design goals were and what it has to offer you. Um, you know, basically rules for sci-fi in 5th edition or uh, things to enhance your White Star game uh, within the Reign of Discordia universe. So... Um, I guess the main thing that's important to get across right now is that we have funded and we currently have uh, 13 days to go and, you know, the, the, the greater funding level we hit, the more we can do with the book. So we really could use your support. So that's a question I didn't ask that I, before, before we, I promise we're wrapping this up, dear listener, do they need to buy the White Star? core rule book to play your game or is everything they need self-contained because i mean obviously you're using the engine but do they need to buy that book i mean yeah they're they're going to need to have the the fifth edition set of rules and frankly um because that's an open source game they could actually just go to the fifth edition srd and look up the rules that are not included in the book to be able to play the game um in the case of white star it would be a, probably a pretty good idea for them to own a copy of the White Star core book. Okay. So that is something to consider, dear listener. But um, all right. So as we wrap this up, before we go, I would like to uh, harken back to the days of old when we were still the Sci-Fi Shenanigans podcast and remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers or gamers find the right books or games. So I promise you, if you buy it on DriveThruRPG, you can review the product over there. If you buy the stuff over on Amazon or Lulu uh, is the print-on-demand, you can also review the products. So do your part, people. And if you want, start a blog, review it there, get a YouTube channel, Twitch channel, whatever. All the things, your reviews and thoughts matter, and you help the right... Uh, Build the right community of like-minded folk. So, uh, so do your part, dear dear user of the content. Having said that, in our obligatory please rate and review, uh, Darren, can you tell uh, listeners how they can find you? Okay, so um, I am on Facebook. Um, you can find me on Twitch. On my um, uh, the name of the channel is going to be changing in the near future, but you can currently look it up under Two D Twenty Fallout. PAC Northwest or PACNW. Um, so that's where you can find me there. Um, obviously, the Kickstarter, you can find me on YouTube where our gaming videos are uh, are posted so you can watch them. Uh, and you can also join my Discord community. All right. And dear listener, we have it uh, on good authority that when he changes his... Um his Twitch name or any of the other stuff, we will update the show notes. So it will stay as current as, um, as long as he, he lets us know of the changes. 
Uh, most of the time, if they update the, the links, the old URLs will still redirect. Um, so you still should be good. Uh, if you find problems with it, just reach out to me and I will bug him until I get the right one. Because uh, sometimes stuff slips through the cracks. But um, but yeah, those are the links for him. They will be in the show notes. You can find us on our Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. If you've got really cool people you want us to interview, you should reach out there and tell us or send them that way. Because we're always looking for new guests to get on the, on the docket. Uh, you can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen, which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast. We have a website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. So you can <coughs> for as little as 99 cents a month. Or you can hop on over to buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. And if they were here, they would tell you they were no quitters. But they're busy at work doing work things. I don't know what that's about. Um, but anyway, as we wrap this up, I've got one question for the road. We would not be the blasters and blades. If I didn't ask you, you have to settle the age old discussion. Do you put pineapple on the sacred pizza or not? Oh, heck no. No way. Okay. Uh -huh. You get to stay doxy. He sided with me. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Dear listener. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for Nick Garber and doc Seska. I am J.R. Handley. And this was the blasters and blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. <laughs>